0: Welcome to Great Loop Radio, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. I'm Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today, my guest is Bill Parlatore, and we are discussing some of the things that, particularly if you're new to boating and looking for your Great Loop boat, uh, some of the things that it would be great for you to know at the very basic level before setting out and these are some of the things that maybe you wouldn't necessarily learn immediately in some of your boating classes so really kind of some some tips to be successful on the waterway and to be courteous um, and have the proper etiquette when you're boating so i will bring in bill in just a moment but like i always do i want to recognize and thank our admiral level sponsors who support aglca they are curtis stokes and associates Maker trawler fest Skipper Bob Publications and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners and our viewers to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. And another business that supports the Great Loop is Seattle Yachts. And I want to introduce Bill Parlator. Um, Bill, thanks for joining us. Welcome.
1: Great to be here.
0: Yeah, I appreciate your time today. And, and a lot of our listeners probably have heard your name before or seen your name in print, but just give us a little bit of uh, the background of yourself and your experience okay. in the boating industry
1: well i uh, i think most people that know me uh, associate me with being the founder of Passage Maker magazine mm-hmm. which we uh which we started back in the mid 90s and uh, eventually started an event business called trawler port and then we bought trawler fest and it just sort of became this uh this big thing for a long time and it was certainly captured by uh Uh, my imagination and it gave me an opportunity to travel pretty much around the world so i've i've been able to do um some pretty incredible stuff which is kind of sad now because a lot of people can't go to some of the places right now with covid and some of the other things going on um before we did passage maker i was a sailor before um uh really we got into trawlers and uh uh, and I've been sailing really since the 70s when I started in Seattle. So um, since then, with, with the magazine, I've been a, on the board of directors of ABYC, the Standards Organization, as well as the Safety at Sea Committee at the Naval Academy. So I've, I've been around and I know a lot of the people in the industry, and it's certainly turned over a lot. But it's, it's great to see how many new people are coming into voting, partially because of covid
0: Right. And it'll be nice when people can start to cruise to some of those far off places again. And I think we're getting there and we've got several loopers, at least um, making the crossing to the Bahamas shortly. Um, Some are already there, in fact. So hopefully we can get some more longer distance cruising in. And um, so you wrote this piece. It was called Getting Ready for the Great Loop. Um, And you wrote that under kind of the Seattle Yachts banner. So tell us a little bit about, you know, Seattle Yachts and, and what made you decide to write this piece about getting ready for the Great Loop.
1: Well I've noticed that it seems like every ten years we get a new generation of people coming into to do cruising to get into boating and and they're asking the same questions that people did ten years ago and I've been talking to um people that are planning to leave in April and in May, and it just seemed like they're 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 not really super experienced with boating and they're not sure what the questions are to ask. So it seemed like, why don't we just kind of cover some of them and, and get people thinking.
0: Yeah. And I, th- I think that's spot on. Um, particularly because even for our newer members or people that are just starting out on the loop that do have a lot of a bo- boating experience. A lot of that is on a lake and there are some different things that are happening out there on the ICW and in my cruise from Charleston down here to Fort Myers uh, a few months ago, I did notice some of the things that you were mentioning that people really should understand and know how to do before they get started on the great loop. So let's, let's kind of jump in, you talk in your article, and I will make sure that um, everyone there will be a link to the article itself in the description on the video and on the podcast version so that you can take a look at that. Um, But you kind of talk about this, you know, the, this idea that's a little bit different than traditional cruising of, um, so for some, the Great Loop really being kind of a bucket list item. And that that kind of changes things in terms of the cruising style a little bit. So talk about that phenomenon and how doing the Great Loop as a bucket list kind of differs from somebody who's going to be out there cruising for you know all of their retirement years.
1: It's very interesting to talk to brokers who are um, working with couples, and they're usually couples, who are looking to do the Great Loop. And they I don't know how they necessarily heard about it, but this is something that they have decided, I have to do this. But they're not necessarily boaters. They don't necessarily have boating experience, and, and the boat is really not that focused to them. Unlike normal cruising people who, uh, excuse me, my dog is rolling over on my foot, uh, <laughs> no who, <problem>. who, <laughs> who wind up um, lusting after the boat. These people are traveling. They're not so much cruising. And so the boat they're looking for is going to be not the top of the line. They want something that's easy to wash and keep clean and not have a lot of maintenance issues. So they want a simpler boat. A, uh, I think in the article I said a Chevy versus a Cadillac. And that's because it's it's not about the boat to them. It's about the experience of going and doing the loop.
0: Yeah. And that, that I liked that analogy because – um, you know, as most of our listeners and viewers know, we're proponents of doing the loop in whatever way is um, joyful and meaningful to you. So there's no right or wrong way to do it. Um, but it is, is true, Bill, you know, back in in your years of Passage Maker and um, at the initial start of America's Great Loop Cruisers Association, it was much more typical for people doing the loop to have been um, long-term cruisers. Frankly, nobody else knew that the loop existed. Um, So there has been that change and that shift. And I think a lot of it is social media just kind of spreads the word a little bit more. So about things like the great loop. So we do have a lot of members that are newer to boating and they're absolutely, of course, welcome. Um, But there's also something we said about the Chevy versus Cadillac analogy. Um, If you are looking to buy a boat, do the loop and then sell the boat. Um, And it's a very different, I think, boat buying strategy if that's your master plan is only to hold the boat, you know, for a year or two years or something along that line. Um, so talk about, you know, kind of the resale portion of that equation. If you, if you're not going to be a long-term boater.
1: I know brokers that have sold the same boat four times to the, to different couples who are going to go do the same thing. And it's almost like, uh, the boat's done the loop four times or five times or whatever. And, um, and I, and that's just very, very different. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, we talk about um, that's the value of your organization is to be a resource for people to to maybe go and ask questions and to find out, and, and especially to meet other people that are going to do this too. And uh, I remember back a long, long time ago, we had a guy named Pete Kopchak who was came and talked about doing the loop. And he spent four years preparing his Hatteras LRC to do the trip. And he, 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 he was laughing and he said it was so stupid because we had this boat that was overqualified. We had all this canned food that we didn't use. We didn't use any of the parts. And he said, we were in Ohio, not up the Amazon River. And so that we made it into a bigger deal than it needs to be. And I think that's also um, something that's important to get the message out, to not overcomplicate and overstress the boat.
0: Right. And, and that's, I think, one of the reasons you mentioned a broker that, you know, that uh, and there are several of them out there who have sold a boat repeatedly to different couples for the loop. And I think that's part of, you know, the peace of mind for somebody that's newer to this is it's, it's clearly um, a proven vessel at that point for the great loop. And boats like to move. So if it's just coming off the loop um, and has performed well on its way around, it's, it's kind of a great time for somebody else to jump into that boat. And take it around. And, and, you know, again, the Chevy versus Cadillac kind of ideas, there's, there's a bigger market for the resale on, you know, kind of the Chevy of boats than there would be on the Cadillac of boats. It's going to be Um, a
1: boat with one engine or two, but that's not really important, mm -hmm. but it won't have a lot of varnished teak. It won't (laughs) be anything on the outside. It'll be just just stainless steel and white fiberglass or whatever color the hull is. And exactly. that's, you, that's normally not an attractive thing, but for doing this trip for those kind of people, it's perfect. Because yes. when they sell the boat, whatever the difference in money is, is the cost of the adventure.
0: Exactly. And, okay and, and, you know, in the past few years, there have been several boats as, as the prices have gone through the roof um, that mm-hmm. bought, the right boat that there would be a market for when they finished and and actually made some money on the deal. And, uh, that is not going to always happen. Um, especially now with prices being so high at some point, the bottom may fall out on, on some of those, um, boats. And, you know, as long as folks are willing to to take it, it's, it's worrisome to watch somebody buy a boat at an increased price right now, knowing that they may not get the value back out of that. Um, But there's also the price of the adventure, and and it's hard to beat that if you kind of, you know, figure that boat cost, as you said, Bill, into that adventure.
1: If that's on your bucket list, it's worth paying for.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But the,
1: the best part about this is in the process of doing the loop, a lot of the people realize they're meeting new people. They're having such a good time. They don't want to sell the boat. And they want to go to the Bahamas and they want to start doing other cruising. And I think that's the, that's the really good thing that hopefully will happen for more and more people.
0: I, I think that's a, a spot on because that is happening more and more that people are just falling in love with the lifestyle and wanting to continue it. And for some of those people, they continue with that great loop boat. And for some, um, after having been aboard for a year or two years, realize that, yes, this is what they want long term. But realize there's maybe a different boat that they would like if they're going to be a true go all in live aboard and continue to cruise so we do see that too some people who thought they'd sell hold on to the boat and other people go ahead with that sale but then purchase uh, something else that they're going to continue to cruise on whether it just be more of the great loop waters or heading over to the bahamas but one of the things you stress bill in your article is the importance of learning the rules of the road um and I, i think there you know there's an impression since there's no in most states no licensing needed to drive a boat you know everybody learns the rules of the road, the actual road for cars. (laughs) Um, But many of us grew up boating on lakes where the rules really, um, and I hate to say it this way because it sounds dangerous, but in certain environments, they're really, the rules aren't as important. You know, if you're on an enclosed lake without a lot of boat traffic. um, So you may have a lot of boating experience, but may not truly know the rules of the road. So whether you're experienced or not, it's something you should have a refresher on. So what are some good resources for people to really, find out and learn and refresh on
1: the rules of the road for boating. Well, thankfully, Boat U.S. is a big, big resource. You have the Power Boat Squadron that has online courses. You have YouTube videos. There's, it's been covered so many different places. It's very easy to pick up uh, even the free pamphlet that the government prints and just kind of look at it and, and just kind of think about it, that it is like passing in a car, but there are times when it isn't, and that's where you need to know how to be able to communicate from if you're, especially in the ICW, that you just went down um, from um, Charleston. There are times when you need to get in front of somebody who's going really slow, and you need to be able to communicate to them so that you can arrange to have a safe passage passing of that vessel. And you could do that either with hand signals or the radio or the horn.
0: And I really want to spend some time on that because it sounds like a simple concept, you know, the, the concept of a slow pass, but there is a right and a wrong way to do it. Um, and in addition to, you know, seeing enough of the right and the wrong way in my own cruising, I also get reports all of the time and it always makes me cringe of, Hey, this, this boat waked me today and they were flying that great Lou Bergy, and they need to learn the rules of the road. So, you know, I would like to think that in most of those circumstances, um, it is you know, a, a mistake or, or sheer ignorance of how to do a slow pass. Um, because like I said, nothing really makes me cringe more than when a, a looper is complaining about being waked on a pass by another looper. So let's, let's talk through that. What is the proper way to an do I, a slow pass?
1: An ideal situation would be two, power, two trawlers going along. One's going a little slower. The one behind that's coming up behind him, uh, wants to arrange a slow pass and to uh, either call him on the radio and just ask for a slow pass. In the best situation, the boat that's in front will slow down just a bit so that the boat that's passing him won't have to go, won't have to be throwing a big wake to get by him. If he's yeah. plodding along at seven knots and slows down to five for like 10, 20 seconds, that's enough time for the boat to get past him without having a lot of wake. In some cases, the, the boat that's being overtaken, if it's a stabilized boat, he might just say, just go ahead because I have fin stabilizers and I'm not going to be affected uh, but that's really the the ideal pass. You're both communicating. It's not just you signaling and hoping that he's hearing you, but he's responding or she's responding back. So you're having a conversation.
0: So you're absolutely right. The communication is really the key there. Um, so does that pro- does that procedure change any um, if you're meeting as opposed to overtaking another boat?
1: Mm-hmm. It's the same signals. You just, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily, uh, uh, you communicate with the same signals. In in the case of commercial traffic, they probably won't be using hand signals. they would use the radio, but it's the same basic thing. Get out of his way and just be as safe as possible. But if, if you're in places like the Rock Pile in Myrtle Beach, you really can't go around somebody. Mm-hmm. So you just have to kind of settle in. If, um, if you give him the boat in front of you, the horn signal, and they don't respond, and you try to call them on the radio, uh, that's made a lot worse, I think I mentioned in the article, if, if the person in front has their dinghy covering the name of the boat, which you see that that's like a mortal sin. And, and I think <laughs> that uh, you shouldn't get the burgee for the, for the uh, Great Loop Association until you prove that you have the name of your dinghy <laughs> uh, the name of your boat on the bottom of your dinghy, because yeah. that makes it very, very frustrating. And there's really no nice way to do that, to do a pass that way.
0: Yes. And I would like to add to that, having the name someplace visible. I am seeing so many more creative, um, almost logoed boat names with some really mm-hmm. attractive and really pretty creative fonts that make it super hard to read. <laughs> um, so get as pretty and as creative as you want with your boat name on your, your transom. Um, but try to leave the font so that it's super readable. Cause it just does add to an ease of communication here. Um, and, and I, I want to. Yeah.
1: The coast guard should reinforce that because there, there are laws on what the letters should look like, how big they are and not be fancy
0: mm-hmm. buried
1: in some graphic.
0: Yes. So. I do want to unpack that a little bit more, back up just a little bit, because you mentioned hand signals, you mentioned horn signaling, and of course we talked about the radio. So kind of walk us through, you know, the order of those procedures, where would you start as you're approaching another vessel, you know, you're coming up behind another trawler who's going just a little slower than you, where would you start on those three different methods of contact?
1: Well, if he doesn't know that I'm behind him, I would call him on the radio by vessel name. And they ask, I'm behind you, but requesting a slow pass. And then they would acknowledge that's fine. They'll slow down a little bit, else maybe speed up or keep the same speed and just go right past him. And then he can speed up again and pull in behind me. That would be the ideal. Okay. Uh, the horn if- is mm-hmm. for the instances where. He's not picking up the radio because he's in a sailboat and sailboats don't typically have the radio right there at the helm. And he's been driving for six weeks from Montreal and he's frozen to death and he's in a coma <laughs> driving at five knots. <laughs> and that's when the, you need the horn to wake him up to know that you're, he's in the middle of the channel and you'd like to get
0: by him. Okay. Um, and one of the things that I, I believe you talk about on both the hand signals and the horn blasts is the, you know, the idea of the one and the two um, horn blasts. So can you kind of walk right. us through that a little bit?
1: Yes. If you do one short burst, it means I'd like to turn to the right and pass you on my port side. And uh, uh, if it's two, uh, two short blasts, it means I'm go- I'd like to turn to the left and pass you on my starboard side. And that's whether you're overtaking or passing traffic coming the other way.
0: Yeah. And for um, loopers should know that particularly in the inland rivers, when you're dealing with commercial traffic, the tows will often use, um, even if you've hailed them on the radio, they will not say, you know, pass me on, on your starboard. They will say, I'll see you on the one or I'll see you on the two. So that's an important concept. Um, great for the Intracoastal Waterway, but even more important on those inland rivers, and there always seems to be a lot of confusion about the one and the two and, you know, who's port and who's starboard, and the way Bill just described it is is spot on and so much simplified, and um, if you consider it like an analog clock, I'm sure that's an an analogy you've used before, Bill, too, but the one means uh, point your bow towards the one on an analog clock, so a little bit to the right, and the two, if you think of the 11 on an analog clock as a Roman numeral two or two ones, a little bit to the left. And that's all you need to remember. And when I first heard that, I thought that sounds oversimplified because I, it had always been explained to me in such a complicated way. And, um, Bill, you just did a great job of really simplifying it. And the clock analogy seems to work. So that's well, a it, great tip.
1: It's sort of like port and starboard. Port is a red wine, so it's a red light. And I've always thought <laughs> of uh-huh. I would like to uh, say that I would recommend, uh, especially if it's if it's a husband and wife and they're not both quite as experienced, mm-hmm. make a label and put it on the helm mm-hmm. of this, of these rules. So that you just, in case you have a, a blonde moment or whatever, you just mm-hmm. look and make sure, oh, yeah, okay, I, I got that. Again. Yep.
0: Yep. Always good to have those visual cues um, for any time that you might run into a little bit of confusion. Um, let's take... A quick break, unless there's anything else um, on the vessel name. You know, anything we've covered so far. That there are any lingering questions? You think, um, Bill? Anything with the, the slow pass procedure or with the vessel names? on No, the
1: I did. I did want to mention radios, though. Yes, and, and I can wait if you want to do. We can come go back ahead, to let's, this. Let's,
0: no, us okay. let's, let's One about thing.
1: That. One thing that I have found uh, very, very helpful and and not typical is my last big boat. I installed a second fixed vhf radio on the bridge so i had two fixed vhf radios one was on 16 and one was on 13 and i also had a handheld that we left on 68 because we wound up during this trip meeting another couple and we started buddy boating with them so we'd be listening on 16 as you're supposed to but 13 allowed us to talk to any of the commercial traffic especially with AIS, you could call them by name and say, what would you like me to do? And then have this third radio that they're listening and they can talk to me. Hey, did you see that, was uh, that, um, it the pink house on the ICW mm-hmm. that, with the giraffe or something It's some goofy <laughs> thing that, yeah. that people see along that. So having rather than just one radio, I think having multiple radios has proven itself time and again to be very, very worthwhile.
0: That's and a great tip. Expected. Yeah, that, that's a great tip, and it's not one that I think I've come across before. I certainly have seen more than one radio at the the helm station, but never really thought about the idea of how they were using multiple. And that that makes total sense. So thank you. That's a great tip. Um, let's take a quick break. I'll play a message from one of our sponsors, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about you know things that you need to know to successfully uh, and safely navigate the ICW. And I think the next thing on the list is bridge clearances. So we'll be back in a moment. Schooner Island Marina is the only full-service floating dock marina on the island in Wildwood, New Jersey. Offering ship store, pool, brokerage and new boat sales, gas and diesel, mobile pump-out, and a full-service yard for any repair needs. Even better for loopers, you can walk to grocery, convenience stores, shops, and restaurants. Wildwood offers one of the most expansive beaches in South Jersey and the best amusement park rides, all within a 15-minute walk. A short ride up the ICW from Cape May Inlet leads you to our well-protected marina. Visit schoonerislandmarina.com for more info. We are back on Great Loop Radio. My guest today is Bill Parlator. Bill is filling us in um, based on an article that he wrote called Getting Ready for the Great Loop. And he's filling us in on, you know, some of the things you need to know, some, some tips, so to speak, for newer boaters who are taking on the Great Loop. Um. So, Bill, let's, let's move on to bridge clearances. Tell us a little bit more about um, uh, the importance of knowing the height of the bridges and how you find the best information, because it's not always where you might think it would be.
1: No, it's, uh, it's surprising how few people really know about bridge clearances, but it gets back to what you had said earlier. Not everybody grew up on a, in an area that had bridges. So if you grew up in the Northwest, you have no idea what bridges are or if you live in South Florida you see them all the time so the the idea is has come up um, that uh, the bridge clearance is at the at the lowest point which is for a bridge that's over uh like a drawbridge it's going to be at the foundation sides and they're always they should be marked at what the what the uh, height is and they usually have uh, they take into account if there's a tidal current; it'll tell you how much water they have, so you don't have to call the bridge. You you know whether you can pass under it or not. Now, of course, it's important to know what the height is of your vessel. And for some boats, it's pretty easy to figure that out. If you have a boat deck uh, like I see over your head, it's kind of flat. So maybe the boat deck above you is just flat versus a con, a ship, you know, kind of a curved shape. You could take something like a fishing pole and lay it on the boat deck and let out fishing line until it hits the water. And then stop it and measure that on the dock to get the exact height of to your boat deck. And then you can use a tape measure once you decide what can be laid down and what's left, whether it's a mast or radar or whatever. You can measure the individual components above that and then come up with a pretty darn close uh, clearance that you can feel comfortable with and confident.
0: So if you don't have that that flat deck, what, is there another method you can suggest for, you know, really figuring well, out, because you really can't go by the boat's specs, um, particularly oh, no, if it's no, no, uh, been resold, you know, there may have been some aftermarket features added. Um, so, you know, let's say you don't have that flat deck at the top of the boat what's what are some other options for really figuring out what your, well, your are if you is?
1: had like a nordic tug a nordic tug or something with multiple levels and so yeah. forth you can just measure the pieces carefully the different heights and put them together i, I recommend don't do that yourself have somebody with you and just measure from the waterline up to uh, the bulwark or someplace and then just go from there up to the top of the cabin. And you can still come up with something that's really, really close. Mm-hmm. I know one guy um, uh, actually flew his drone behind his boat when he was going under a bridge to see how much space there was. And then he kind of backtracked to figure out what the height was from that um, by going under the bridge, which is mm-hmm. okay. I had never heard of that. But uh, Yeah, that's interesting.
0: I had um, never would heard work of that too. either. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um okay, so once but you but it's you important know- to know
1: that mm-hmm. it, it's important to know that because uh, their bridge attenders don't like to open a bridge unnecessarily. And if they see that you're gonna fit and you say no, you're not gonna fit, you need to be really right.
0: Mm-hmm. So and, and with that in mind, um tell a little bit more about kind of the that in- impact of tides, you know. So you figured out your airdraft on your boat um, and right. let's see, you're looking in a cruising guide and you see that the bridge coming up has 20 foot clearance. What does that 20 foot exactly mean and how short well, you'll, can you be from the cruising guide that that's actually correct?
1: If you're, if you're coming up to, well, I, I wouldn't believe anything that's in the cruising guide because they change mm-hmm. and it's really hard to keep cruising guides up to date. I will I applaud them for trying to do it every year but Uh it's really difficult Um, you can't travel blind that way but when you come up to say the municipal bridge in St. Augustine it very clearly says what the height is and you can see on the uh, there's a board on the side where the current is going through it'll show you the numbers of what the the height is at that moment. Uh And so you'll be able to determine whether or not you can make the bridge. And of course, you'll probably need to lower your antennas right. because they also don't like to raise bridges because you could have put your antenna down, but you didn't want. <laughs> um, so that that's kind of an etiquette thing, too.
0: Right. So, uh, you know, certainly don't rely on the cruising guide, particularly in, in highly tidal areas or if there's been uh, flooding rain or things like that. Uh, but it's great for a planning tool. Correct. Cause I would rather Absolutely. know well before the bridge that, okay, this one might be close. Um,
1: yeah. Plus, the guide tells you other things that you might want to know, which is, uh, uh, kind of off what we're talking here a little bit, but one of the kind of love, hate things I have with the great loop is that some people that, um, uh, that are just planning to do the loop in one year, mm-hmm. they'll, just go through and not stop anywhere i had right before covid i had lunch in annapolis with three couples from the midwest who were all doing the loop and didn't they weren't traveling together but they happened to have kind of gotten to be friends and they were going to do chesapeake bay in two and a half days which i thought was well that's kind of sad because (laughs) there's so much to see you know and they but they were I I took one couple to go get their propane tank filled. And so we we had some uh, enjoyable lunch, but I was just surprised how people um, don't maybe use the cruising guide to say, well, let's go to St. Michael's or let's go to Baltimore or any number of places along the loop of of actually stop and spend some time. Uh, Are you aware of a guy named Dave Pike? Yes. He did it in a walker bag.
0: Yes. He, mm-hmm. he
1: did the loop in a Walker Bay rib. Yes. yes. And I, I caught up with him in Rock Hall and wrote a couple of articles about him. Yep. And his his way of doing this was he played pickleball every night.
0: Yes. He, he actually would, just he, came he, up in our forum this week <laughs> because somebody was asking oh, about right. playing pickleball. And then how do you know where you can play pickleball? And somebody mentioned Dave Pike.
1: But he said that he, uh, every night, he got off the boat, obviously, he was in a 15-foot open boat, mm-hmm. but uh, he would play, and the socialization, it kept him active. And he just said that that kept it from being a boring boating trip, because <laughs> he got off the boat every day. And I think maybe that's a little extreme, but, uh, but I think it's important to maybe travel for a few days and then take a day or two off,
0: maybe. Yeah. And, and even for most loopers, even when they, they do it in kind of that typical seasonal year long cruise, um, you know, the average actual days underway is, is usually one in every three. So, you know, roughly 120 travel days is pretty much kind of the looper average. Now, whether that 120 days is over the course of a year or over the course of three years is just dependent on how long you stay in different places. Um, but even in a year, there's plenty of time to, to explore. And we certainly encourage that. And actually, you mentioned the Chesapeake. And that's that's one place um, I think people get a little bit in a hurry um, for a couple reasons. I think they can get a little bit overwhelmed because there is so much you could see on the Chesapeake. Um, but the other thing is I think they start to get eager to get into the New York State canals and get over the border into Canada um, and do some of the cruising in the Great Lakes. And, and the Chesapeake is actually one of the places I hear most Um, when there is a looper who has completed the loop and decides they fell in love with the lifestyle, they're keeping the boat, they're going to keep cruising. The Chesapeake is, is probably the most common cruising ground I hear of them going back to because they feel like they missed so much. Um, so it's a great, it, it is. And it's a great place. Um, particularly if you're living, you know, year round on the boat, a lot of people try to leave Florida during hurricane season for insurance reasons. And the Chesapeake has really become quite a magnet for a lot of loopers during, um, during the summer who are trying to escape the heat and the um, hurricane fees that you'll pay on your insurance if you're in Florida during that time. So, so Bill, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the the clearance on those bridges and that the signage that's right there at the bridge is probably the most accurate information you're going to get. So you can know from the cruising guides as you're approaching the bridge, if it might be one that's closed for you and whether you have to request an opening. Um, How reliable is it that there will be signage there? Do you find a lot of places in your cruising where maybe, Um, the signage has been removed or fallen and not been maintained
1: only in places that most people don't go uh, that if if it's an offshoot or variation on a traditional route you might find something that's not um, either well maintained or in the case of Lake Okeechobee there's a certain way of going Lake Okeechobee we kind of go around and when you call the bridge tender He's at home and he says, oh, give me a couple minutes. I'll drive down. And then he, then he operates the bridge. So, I mean, it's, the bridges are all kind of different. And I think that uh, uh, you generally don't have this scratching your head. I don't know what to do here because you can always call them either cell phone or on the radio and, right. uh, and get information that way.
0: Okay. And that was actually my next question. Um, you know, how, from your experience in the extended cruising you've done, how willing are those bridge tenders to um, answer a VHF call or answer a phone call, which you can also find that information in the cruising guide. So that's another reason to have it with you. Um, but, you know, how willing are they to give you, if you're a mile out and you might have a substantial equipment, you may have to drop or whatever it might be, are they usually willing to give you the current um, height if you call them ahead of time?
1: I have found them the ranging from super accommodating to much less so. <laughs> the, uh, the, the Roosevelt Bridge in Stewart, uh, that lady is, uh, I always thought of, about sending her roses because she's just always so happy and she, mm-hmm. t- she wants to know where you're coming from. And, and then the opposite is when you're going through Norfolk or going up the uh, Carolinas, where those three bruises are, where they're not as particularly as interested in knowing anything about you. But uh, this got into a discussion I had with a friend of mine who was helping me bring my boat up when we went to Norfolk. There was the question of, do you slow your boat down to time arriving at the hour or half hour or whatever? Or do you just hurry up and get there and then wait? And he said, no, let's get up there and wait. And I normally would disagree with them. But in Norfolk, it turned out they were working on the bridge. And she said, I'm going to open it 20 minutes early just for you, because that'll give them more time to work on the bridge. So by showing up 20 minutes early, she just led us through, which is not something you expect to see. But I thought that was sort of changed your attitude a little bit to to not slow down, but to, to get there and see what's going on.
0: Yeah, no, that that that's super interesting because a lot of loopers would prefer to slow down to time it for the bridge opening rather than just you know get there and have the hassle of trying to do donuts for 20 minutes until the the right. bridge opens. So that that's an interesting anecdote about how sometimes actually continuing at your normal speed can work in your favor. So that's that's a great tip. Um, anything that's else? only happened once though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so unlikely, but could be in your favor every now and then. So um. Before we wrap up, Bill, any other tips along these lines that you would want newer boaters to know about before they set out on their great loop?
1: I think it's really important to set an example and to make sure that you don't um, do disservice to your boat or your crew by being uh, uh, rude or anything, because when you're traveling in places like dismal swamp, or the ICW, or the Erie Canal, any of the canals, you're going to see these people again. So if you think you're going to blast, you know, these delivery captains that throw a huge wake, and then fly by you at 40 knots, you're never going to see them again. But these looper people, you're going to keep running into them. So you kind of want to make friends with them.
0: That is 100% true. And I also, um, I am distressed by what I call um, wake shaming. But there have been some instances where um, the Great Loop, a Facebook group called The Great Loop, which is AGLCA's Facebook group, has grown to over 50,000 people. Now, there are not anywhere near 50,000 people in the association. It's a public group. Many of the people in there are not loopers. So, so anything that happens there, I try to take with a grain of salt. But there have been a few instances where somebody, you know, uh, calls out another for waking them on a not giving them a slow pass and the burgies flying and they you know post the boat name and everything else and it always it never ends well for anybody i don't think that makes any of us look good um you know i started calling it you know public wake shaming and we tend to remove them on facebook not because we're taking one side or the other you know there are certain people who say that they've gotten this wake and maybe it wasn't as substantial who knows but just do a slow pass and then none of us have to worry about it, especially if you're flying that burgee. you know, as Bill said, you know, make yourself and your crew and your boat look good, but also for the association's sake um, I've said it a couple times now, but I just cringe when I get these reports of somebody flying the burgee and um, you know, not following proper boating etiquette. So um, Bill, great advice today. I think it's really going to be helpful for some of our newer boaters. And um, as I said, there will be a link to the article Bill wrote in the video description and in the audio description for the podcast. So Bill Parlator, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really insightful.
1: My pleasure. Have and a to, great Deb.
0: Yeah. And, and to everyone who's watched or listened today, thank you for joining us once again. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Great Loop Radio podcast. Until then, safe cruising.